Good morning, everyone, and welcome along to this uh, Fraser Valander webinar. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Graham Roy uh, from the Institute, and I'll be chairing this session today. Uh, can I begin by, first of all, saying I hope everyone is, uh, is well and staying safe in these extraordinary times. And while this is clearly a public health emergency, during this time, we at the Fraser Valland Institute have been working hard to understand the implications of COVID-19 for the economy and also households. We've been publishing a number of different articles on our website and also running various podcasts and webinars, and this is in the latest in the series of those. I hope you're finding them informative and we'll continue to take this forward in the weeks to come. So one thing just for your diaries, on Tuesday, we'll be running a webinar with our good friends at the Resolution Foundation. And for those of you who've been following their work, they've been doing some great stuff to look at the economic implications of COVID-19 across the UK, with a particular focus about what it means for workers and families. So we'll be doing a session with them on Tuesday at 9.30 to 11 o'clock, it's Tuesday 19th of May, to look at their latest work and what it might mean for a Scottish uh, audience and what the context might be up here. Turning to today, so I'm delighted to joining me today um, to provide interesting insights from my colleagues, Mary Spowage, Stuart McIntyre, and Emma Congreve. What we want to do today is provide a bit of a brief overview of the latest intelligence on the economy, but the main aim is to start to look forward and to talk about what happens next and how the economy and policy might evolve in the months and weeks to come. We'll talk a bit about the policy agenda in during that recovery, and over the time, we'll take about 30 minutes or so, and then we'll open it up to, to questions. Now, before we begin on that, just to talk you through the technical aspects of how all this will work, I'll hand over to my colleague, James Black, who'll talk us through the format and how to ask some questions. So James, over to you. Hi everyone. So there's a couple of features uh, at the bottom of your screen. So one of them is chat. Uh, and through this, if you need any support, uh, technical support anything, you can speak to me and hopefully I'll be able to help. Uh, the other one is the Q&A, where you can type in your questions and when we get to the Q&A section, uh, we'll be able to see them and answer them. And that's it. Great, thank you very much, James. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, Mary Spowage to start this session. Thanks, Graham. So, um, yeah, we're just going to talk through a bit about our um, current views on what's happening in the economy as a result of the crisis, um, a bit about um, our view on the policy measures that have been introduced and the fiscal implications, the impact on households and families um, that we see happening uh, in the economy and what might happen in the future, and also given that um, there's starting to be a discussion about unwinding the lockdown, what that might mean for the next few months uh, and years ahead in terms of practical considerations for workplaces and things like that. So um, just to sort of recap on, on what we know so far, um, you'll have probably heard a lot in the media about various estimates of the, the cost of the lockdown that we currently have in place. Um, we published some estimates early in April about anything up to a quarter of the economy potentially mothballed, which would have quite a significant impact over the quarter if it was to remain in place for three months. And we're getting towards that sort of period of time just now. Um, the OBR published a scenario that was about 
35% of GDP over the quarter. So whilst these estimates are obviously quite uncertain, um, the thing to take away from them is that they are very, very big and very unprecedented. So essentially that the scale of the economic lockdown is like nothing we've ever seen before in recent history. Initial data that's come out um, from the UK suggests that these are unlikely to be un under S um, overestimates, sorry. Um, you know, this, the scale of the lockdown is very significant. Now, we, so we don't have estimates, obviously, for the second quarter yet. Um, but what we do have is some emerging indicators. And there's lots of interesting things that are being put out by the ONS and soon by the Scottish government to try and capture what the kind of emerging picture is for the economy on a more real-time basis. And if you're interested in this, we've published a blog this morning on the real-time indicators that can kind of start to capture what the impact may actually be on the Scottish economy. So have a look at that if you're interested in on what we know currently and what we might know in future. And we're going to be updating that on a regular basis. A question that we've been asked a lot is how similar is this economic crisis to you know, past crises, particularly the financial crisis, obviously, which we remember best. Um, I guess this is very different because the public health crisis meant that, that large parts of the economy were deliberately shut down. That is what we're trying to do in order to save lives and protect public health. Um, so in a way, the economic impact is what um, you would expect and shows that the, um, the lockdown is, is sort of operating effectively. There obviously has been major and that word again, unprecedented government support. Um, and I'll come on to talk a bit more about that in, in a second. I guess the important thing that we've been thinking about is that the sectoral effects of this are likely to be variable. Different sectors have been impacted in, to different extents. Um, particularly the tourism and hospitality sector has been completely shut down. Um, travel is obviously discouraged greatly. So there are particular sectors of the economy where um, the impact will be more, um, will be felt more. And also that the lockdown and um, associated measures of people being unwilling to spend money are likely to persist more in, in particular sectors. So um, this will also lead in Scotland and the UK as a whole to different regional impacts given the prevalence of different sectors in different parts of the economy. And we're particularly concerned about rural areas and the reliance on hospitality and tourism and travel spending. This may in turn lead to a, um, a different impact between Scotland and the rest of the UK. And that may have some um, fiscal implications for Scotland and the Scottish budget, which I'll talk about in a sec. So I mentioned the policy responses that have been put in place by, by, um, by the government, um, the majority of them by the UK government, but there has been Scottish government intervention as well. Um, obviously the initial responses um, throughout March and April have been to help businesses and individuals sort of survive through this economic lockdown. And I think the focus is making sure that otherwise perfectly viable businesses don't go out of business because they're unable to operate through this period. And, you know, our survey um, that we have done of businesses does suggest that cash flow is really the issue. And many businesses, the majority of businesses, in fact, don't have enough cash to survive for three months um, under this current level of operating. So there's a, there's a key cash flow crisis, particularly in smaller businesses. 
So there's this unprecedented intervention by the government in the economy. It's also been evolving. It's quite hard to keep up with all of the policy measures and what they cover. Um, as um, particular groups have sort of said, well, this one doesn't cover me, so something else needs to be put in place. There's obviously a series of loan schemes, including the business interruption and the bounce back loan scheme. We've seen some issues, particularly with the business interruption loan scheme in the beginning. And the bounce back loan scheme was put in place partially as a response to that. And the bounce back loan scheme has now overtaken um, the interruption loan scheme in terms of the amount of money that's been lent out. Um, so it certainly seems to have been successful at getting money out the door quickly to small and medium enterprises. There's a number of business rates, holidays and grants. Because that system is devolved to Scotland um, and to Wales and Northern Ireland, um, the way that it's been implemented in the different nations of the UK has been slightly different, which has caused some issues and also caused some evolution of the schemes in different parts of the UK um, as the weeks have passed. Um, there's obviously the biggest, one of the biggest policy measures, which is the coronavirus job retention scheme, which has now been extended in some form past the end of July, potentially asking employers to start to contribute to um, the 80% of salary covered. I'll be interested to see how that does evolve. The details will be revealed, we understand, by the end of June. Um, but as employers have to contribute more to the cost of their furloughed staff, it may obviously have impacts on the levels of redundancy or job losses that we see in the economy. There's the self-employment scheme which, um, which opened last week um, and has had um, a lot of applicants to it which will cover profits for people who are on the self-assessment system up to a, a level of £50,000. Um, and then there's packages for community and voluntary organisations. Um, this is very much focused on giving money mostly to local authorities to support their welfare and hardship funds, but there are also some funds that can be directly accessed by third sector organisations. But still there are those that are falling through the cracks. There's a newly self-employed, the Scottish Government have put in a new um, scheme to help support some of these uh, people who don't have a self-assessment tax history. There's obviously um, things like the support for the third sector is quite patchy and we've had, heard a number of um, instances where Charities haven't been able to access support, perhaps because they've got, you know, pretty good reserves and therefore um, they're, they're not seen as in crisis. So there are still gaps in support, um, but these policy measures are absolutely enormous and um, are completely unprecedented, and certainly in the UK. So what does that mean? I mean, the attention is now turning to the sort of the, the large fiscal cost of these measures. The money involved is, is, is quite eye-watering. Um, there's a large range in what the deficit may be for this financial year that we're currently in. Um, the sort of central estimate is around £350 billion, um, but it could be as high as £500 billion, depending on how much money is spent through things like the job retention scheme. So, there's a discussion started and there was a leaked treasury document earlier this week um, to start the discussion on this. Um, it may mean that there's further austerity once we're through this. Um, so spending cuts on public services. It may mean that we need to think about tax rises. Um, it's, it's very likely to mean that there'll be an acceptance of higher levels of government debt. So the discussion is really just starting on what this might mean 
for um, for the public finances going forward. And obviously in Scotland, um, we need to think about what this means for the, the future of the Scottish budget and the way that our, our fairly new devolved powers work. Um, so for example, UK budgetary decisions are still very significant in affecting the amount of spending power that the Scottish um, Parliament and government have that's available to them. This is still the main thing that determines how much money we have to spend in Scotland. However, given we have powers over income tax um, which is the, and, and other taxes, although income tax is the most significant one and most um, directly linked to economic um, performance, um, different economic impacts in Scotland will influence the size of the Scottish budget. So for example, if there's a larger economic impact due to the pandemic in Scotland than in the rest of the UK, then that will um, have negative consequences for the Scottish budget um, if our tax base suffers more than that in the rest of the UK. And given the sectoral impacts that we mentioned earlier and the regional impacts, we are concerned that there's a possibility that Scotland will be impacted more um, severely than the rest of the UK. So I'm just going to hand over to my colleague Emma now to talk about the impact on individuals and households. Thanks, Marie. Um, yes, so when looking at the, the overall picture, um, we are very keen to then drill down to see what that means for um, individuals and households um, who, of course, um, will be quite exposed uh, during this crisis. So from what we know already is that many people are already facing financial distress. So on the right hand side, the first chart there, um, looks at some figures put out by IPPR Scotland and the Standard Life Foundation, looking at whether people feel that they um, are financially secure or facing levels of financial distress. And you can see um, even now that, um, you know, up to 70% of all families saying they're at the very least potentially exposed financially with quite a few already struggling to make ends meet or in serious financial difficulty. And those figures increase where you've got families with dependent children, which makes sense given um, having children home from school um, and nursery it will, will be um, meeting challenges for people being able to work effectively. Um, and also just for the case that, you know, the more children you have in the family, the more um, mouths to feed and the more challenging um, it will be if your um, income is reducing. Of course, it, things would be a lot worse had the government support schemes not been put in place, and particularly the job retention scheme will have kept people's incomes um, propped up significantly. But there will be people who are looking forward and are concerned thinking about, you know, so what is the future for my job? Um, obviously, the job retention scheme is going to last um, for quite some time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all companies are going to um, survive this crisis and that all jobs will survive this crisis. So you can understand why people are, um, are feeling insecure about their finances and indeed thinking that things may get worse before they get better just because of the huge level of uncertainty about what actually happens when um, businesses start to reopen on a large scale. It will be some time before um, we get that full picture of what's going on um, in the labour markets. Um, so next week we'll start to get some initial labour market figures that cover um, the beginning of, of the crisis period in March. Um, but we are going to have to sort of wait and see um, 
the impacts, like how many people in Scotland are, are, are on furlough and what have been the kind of particular impacts on different parts of the labour force. Um, and that will be really key to get that information uh, to start sort of building the, ad the appropriate policy response. And as Mary said, we put out a, um, an article this morning that, that looks at, at what we do know from surveys and um, initial indicators in terms of what's going on um, in the labour market and on household incomes. But thinking a little bit forward to when the um, economy does start to open a little bit, for example, starts to do what we saw happening in, in England over the last few days. Um, so it is, it is possible that some of the barriers um, for people in terms of if they still got children home from school or from nursery, or if they have um, potential uh, long uh, long-lasting kind of ill health which makes them more susceptible to the virus that they may face particular barriers in returning to the workplace even if their workplace reopens um, so we are quite concerned about this and we, we've been writing a little bit about it because it's something we really need to preempt um, and understand how we can reduce that um, that harm where possible and it is of course really difficult particularly if people reliant on public transport where you know they may feel very uneasy about using public transport if they feel more susceptible to the virus and such like. So we need to recognise those barriers um, and we'll, you know, this is for the Scottish Government to really think about how they can minimise the harm because there is a um, correlation between you know, these people we think will have barriers to returning to work and people who are already um, facing higher levels of financial distress. So the bottom chart on this slide looks at, some, at the child poverty rates for particular groups in Scotland. So this is pre-crisis. Um, and so we can see where, where you have more children, where you're a single parent, where you have a very young child, poverty rates are much higher. And these are you know, families that, that will struggle to, to be able to return to work um, in the short term. But also um, house, children that live in households with a disabled person have also got higher poverty rates. And also, this has been well documented uh, in terms of mortality rates for minority ethnic groups, but they do have already have much higher child poverty rates. And so if they are more affected um, in, from a health perspective in this, in this crisis, they again may be um, sort of more anxious about returning to, to business as, as usual um, whilst this crisis is still in circulation. So thinking now about the longer term, um, so there are lots of challenges that, and indeed there's lots of discussion going on about how um, the new normal may look um, and there's lots of challenges here for the government but we're very clear that you know we need to set ourselves on the right path in terms of the the short term before you know jumping ahead to thinking about you know the long term and how you know things are going to be potentially much um, much better and um, it there's a pathway to get there and um, so there has been a lot of talk about the reappraisal of how we treat low-paid workers um, Obviously, they've shown themselves to be critical during this pandemic. You know, supermarket staff, delivery drivers, and the frontline health and social care staff. And um, so, how do we actually build um, a system where they are paid um, paid more in recognition of their value? Because they are very much of these are very low-paid workers um, at the moment. There's also a discussion to be had about um, the level of support that the government uh, provides for for people in crisis situations due to factors out with their control, which this pandemic has been um, a big, see, uh, yeah, it, it, that's definitely what we've seen during this crisis. So 
we have seen these unprecedented measures put in place in order to to help people but people have fallen between the cracks and there is a discussion in terms of whether there should be an automatic you know um large-scale support for people who do need help um during crises like these and then there's a discussion about what level of income is acceptable for government to provide during this um, universal credit rates have, are, are fairly low um, and obviously much lower than what is being made available under the job retention scheme for example so we do need to have that discussion you know we can't really have a two-tier system um, going forward then there's a question about how individuals and households will respond to this and will there be changes in how people um, view risk and will there be more savings what is acceptable business behavior in terms of this they're probably going to want to reduce risk in their workforce as well but we don't want more zero hours contracts, um, but we want more people to be ha having a secure um, livelihood. So how are we gonna make that happen? And as I've already touched on, how do we ensure that we can um, continue this, the, the energy that was there before the crisis in terms of being able to tackle child poverty? Because that is a, a long-term um, challenge for our economy and our society. Um, this crisis will probably have made it harder um, so how do we get back and um, build back better in terms of um, our outlook for children in poverty in the future? So Stuart is now going to touch on some more of these uh, big long-term challenges. So I'll hand over to you, Stuart. Thanks, Emma. Um, so what I want to try and do in the next um, sort of five minutes or so um, is talk a bit about um, the recovery, um, some of the um, the issues and challenges um, and, and how um, government feeds into this as well. Um, so as Mary mentioned, um, the ONS put out data this week um, looking at what happened, you know, the immediate economic impact um, that only covered that the, the hit the economy took in March. Um, that being said, it was, it was fairly substantial. Um, next month we'll get um, data for April, um, which will give us a better idea of um, of the UK-wide um, aggregate economic impact. Um, but of course, we expected these numbers would be big. Um, that was the whole point. Um, we were shutting down the economy um, in order to protect public health. So none of these numbers are, are that surprising um, in that sense. Um, so as, as we look at what we um, think will happen to the economy um, through the months ahead, um, all the scenarios that have been produced so far have been for the economy to recover very quickly. Um, so the sort of V-shaped type recession um, of the economy entering recession very quickly, but also emerging very quickly. Um, I think it's safe to say there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not that's what's going to happen. Um, you know, the expectation is that the recovery will be gradual. Um, of course, you know, it's quite easy to shut down businesses, starting them back up again is more difficult. Um, we are likely to see some activity that would have taken place now just won't take place at all. Um, there's questions over our basic economic infrastructure. Um, we've, we've seen this week um, Transport for London having to be given quite a lot of money by the UK government to um, continue their operations. Um, and of course, as the global economic disruption continues, supply chains um, will take some time to, to, to reconstitute. Um, there's obviously an issue here as well about you know, getting people back to work um, who aren't able to work um, from home um, and all the challenges um, that, that, that Emma touched on um, around that. Um, so 
it's going to take some time for, for um, households and, and businesses to, to sort of right the ship um, in a lot of ways to rebuild their, their own finances and balance sheets. Um, that again is, is going to be a challenge um, for the, the economy coming out of, of, of this crisis. Um, with that in mind, of course, um, there's a key role for government here to play. Um, we've, we've already seen the um, UK government come forward with its sort of roadmap, um, both from a public health perspective, but also um, an economic um, perspective. Um, we've seen sort of workplace-based guidance coming forward to try to help businesses um, plan for, for restarting um, their activities and expanding their activities. Um, of course, workplace-based is, is the right level for that to take place. Um, we've got, rather than say sectors, um, we've got businesses that operate across a number of sectors of the economy. Um, they may have factories as well as office, office um, suites, um, as well as other types of, of premise. So what's really important is the guidance is given to firms that's relevant to the workplace in which they, they operate or workplaces. Um, and of course, um, businesses will operate across the UK um, and internationally, so um, the guidance will have to take that into to account somewhat. Um, as we um, emerge more from this um, and we get kind of deeper into to the recovery um, period, it may well be the case that we want to start thinking a bit more about sectors and putting in sort of sectoral um, specific packages. So, you know, doing something for particular parts of the economy, say hospitality and tourism, um, for example. Um, so, you know, it's kind of the two phases um, of, of an immediate guidance to, to get workplaces back up and running and then longer term support for particular sectors. Um, Kind of turning to the long term and what that might look like, I think we all agree that there's a high degree of uncertainty about that. Um, it's likely that absent uh, advances with a vaccine, we're going to see sort of social distancing um, become part of the new normal. Um, and therefore, you know, that's going to affect every aspect of the economy. Um, you know, everything from getting people to work, how people operate and work. Um, what's possible um, you know, to, to be produced in the economy. Um, you know, all of this is likely to, to, to um, be heavily affected by this. Um, also, as, as economists, when we think about the um, macroeconomic effects, you know, we start worrying about um, whether or not there'll be more persistent you know, negative effects of some of the things that, that we see um, emerging through economic crisis. So things like um, people becoming unemployed. Um, we know the longer people are unemployed, um, the worse it is for them and the more difficult it is for them to return to the labour market. Um, so you know, that's something that we'll, we'll be quite concerned about um, you know, the longer the, the recovery takes. Um, and you know, Emma touched on this a bit as well, where um, th there's a lot of um, discussion taking place about the nature of the recovery. Um, and I think there's lots of ideas about, you know, people have about what they want that to look like um, and what they want the new normal to look like and um, sort of reimagining how the economy functions. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that's fine. I think that there's a, a kind of um, a more basic point here, which is um, it's going to take some time before we know what the economy that emerges from this um, looks like. 
Um, and in a sense, before we fully understand what's possible um, and you know, the, the, um, the resources and the scope that we've got um, for these more, um, these sorts of wider changes. Um, so I guess sort of in, in summary, um, it's too early to say precisely what shape this recession um, that we're in is going to take. Um, some of that's judged, uh, a function of the public health um, crisis. Um, of course, the policy response as well will help shape this. Um, and what that longer term looks like will depend upon um, both of those things, how the public health crisis resolves itself, um, how the policy um, and government response, um, what shape that takes. Um, and of course, um, where that puts our economy um, as, as we um, emerge from, from this crisis. Um, so on that somewhat optimistic note, I'll hand back to Graham, um, who's going to take us through Q&A. Great, excellent. Um, thank you very much, um, Mary, Emma and, and Stuart. So we'll now move to the Q&A. So we've got um, just under an hour for all of that. So as James explained, if you go into the um, into the Q&A part, you can put your question up and then we'll see them and we'll be able to answer them. But uh, there's typically there's quite a few questions for people. So what I'll try and do is try and group them as much as possible. So if I don't ask specifically your question, it might be because I'm trying to tie it into another question from, from, um, from somebody else. So, I mean, just picking up on where Stuart ended, I guess, if we could turn to Mary, um, we're beginning to hear quite a bit about new policies, new ideas, etc. And there's been a bit of discussion around fiscal framework in all of this and the opportunities, but also the limitations in that. And you were in front of the Finance Committee yesterday talking a, yes. a bit about that. Um, can you just talk to us how you think the fiscal framework might be impacted by all of this and where potential reform might be needed? Sure. Well, I suppose just for those who are uninitiated on the fiscal framework to sort of summarise, the idea um, with the powers that have been devolved um, through the Scotland Act 2016 is that the fiscal framework sort of protects the Scottish budget from UK-wide economic shocks. So in the case of income tax, if um, obviously tax revenues are likely to be impacted because people might have lost their jobs or might be earning less, therefore less tax will be taken in. But if that happens at the same rate per head in the UK as a whole as Scotland, then the Scottish budget doesn't sort of lose out from that. So that's the way it's designed to try and kind of um, protect the Scottish budget from UK or global shocks, which are obviously completely beyond the control of the Scottish government. So that's the idea. But if for any reason the crisis were to impact more on Scotland than the UK as a whole, um, then income tax revenues may be more impacted in Scotland and therefore there would be a negative impact on the Scottish budget. Equally, if it was impacted less than the, the UK as a whole, then that would mean that the Scottish budget may have more resources available to it. So overall, um, you know, I've seen there's a question about why we think the impacts on Scotland may be more severe, which is a fair question. Um, and there are a few things to think about. There's a kind of sectoral makeup of the Scottish economy, um, a sector which is particularly badly impacted um, given the depression of the oil price right now and the fall in demand is the oil and gas sector. And we saw in 2015 and 16 how much uh, a, 
a sort of oil oil price shock and a depression in the oil and gas sector can impact on the onshore supply chain and the Scottish economy as a whole. And we saw a big divergence between Scottish and UK economic growth during that period. So it's likely that that will have a differential impact on Scotland. There's also the fact that um, the sectors that we think will be most impacted, so the sort of social spending, tourism, hospitality spending sectors, are more prevalent in Scotland than the UK as a whole. So they're likely to be more impacted. There's likely to be more impact there on Scotland. And there's particular areas of Scotland that might be particularly impacted by that, as we've already mentioned. The third thing which might mean that there's a, a bigger impact on Scotland um, is the is the fact that some of the guidance here has been um, interpreted a bit differently and the approach to certain types of companies has been different. So for example, construction firms in Scotland were told to shut, which were still operating in the rest of the UK. Now, whether that's the right thing to do or not, it was certainly different and therefore it might be that it had a different impact. And we're seeing as we come out of lockdown or, or certainly in, the, in, in England, um, there's likely to be a different approach going forward to companies reopening, which will have an impact on the amount of economic output they're, they're able to generate and how quickly they might recover. So all of this means that we think there, there might be a different impact on Scotland, um, which will um, impact the Scottish budget, given the way that the fiscal framework operates. In terms of the fiscal framework, it was clear that um, in the last couple of years when it's been actually operating um, properly and um, to almost its full extent on the tax side, that the powers that there are for the Scottish Parliament and government to borrow money if um, receipts aren't as expected, so basically to cover um, forecast error, um, aren't really adequate given the level of risk that the Scottish budget is now open to. Income tax is a very large tax and therefore it can fluctuate and it can be difficult to forecast this accurately. So um, it's clear already that the provisions in the fiscal framework weren't really sufficient. And during a period of crisis like this, it sort of, it makes it even more apparent that there isn't the flexibility there to deal with sort of short-term issues that may arise, um, given that receipts from the fully devolved or the partially devolved taxes may not be quite what you're expecting, given this large shock. So it's clear that there are issues with the fiscal framework provisions for flexibility, which might need to be looked at as part of the fiscal framework review or, or perhaps even more immediately in order to grant the flexibility that might be required over the coming financial year. There's a question from Donald, just building on that around Barnet bypass. And will we start to see increasing elements of that if there's you know, different geographic areas and sectors of the UK? And I guess the obvious one in that is the, the discussions around what might happen if a lockdown was to last for longer in different parts of the UK. Might a job retention scheme vary in different parts of the country? Yes, yeah, so there's a couple of things in that. I mean, th there's been a kind of um, a trend towards some um, so-called Barnet bypass where the UK government are keen to spend money in, um, in the devolved countries in order to it to be seen to be UK government spending. So the city deals um, are, a, are a, an example of that, where both UK and, and Scottish governments are putting in money to um, mostly um, in, invest in infrastructure projects in particular regions of the UK. Um, and this is 
you know, you could think of this as Barnet Bypass because it's not like they're spending money in England, which is then generating consequentials for the Scottish government to do with what they would like. Rather, it's the UK government's been seen to be spending money um, directly. Um, so it is difficult to know if that will, that there will be more of that. But to deal with your question um, directly, um, it might be that the it's thought that there needs to be, you know, a, a differential um, approach to the job retention scheme given the levels of lockdown and shutdown in different parts of the UK. But practically, it does seem quite difficult um, to think about how that will work. Um, the way it's working and actually being administered through through HMRC, um, and so if the Scottish government wish to have it working for longer than the UK government do then that's going to have to be a conversation between two governments about how practically that could operate. And the really big question is how it will be paid for and who will pay for it um, and how much flexibility um, the Scottish government has in order to fund that if that's what they wish to do. That's great, yeah. And I guess that gets to, there's a point right just to come in from Rod about, you know, is it fair to say that the fiscal framework wasn't designed for that kind of one in 100 year um, event in mind. And I think that's true. I mean, I think that's fair. I think all aspects of policy, public finances, monetary policy are, you know, get put under strain and stress whenever you have a major economic shock like this. Um, so, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think there's a couple of things um, I, would, I would sort of say about that. Obviously, um, the, the current circumstances are completely unprecedented. Um, and it might be that the Scottish government wishes to push for certain policy measures to persist in Scotland longer or to take a different view. But it is worth saying that the policy measures that have been put in place by the UK government are, like, are completely, <laughs> as I've said, unprecedented and are quite bold in a way. I mean, they kind of had to do it, but you know, it's quite impressive the range of measures that they've put in place and that they've managed to put them in place um, so quickly, albeit with the help of the devolved administrations, particularly on the business rate side. Um, so it might be that the Scottish government also has to think, be quite bold about how to, you know, think about how they're going to spend their budget this year in order to support economic recovery in Scotland. Um, you know, I would say that the UK government has been quite bold here uh, and quite innovative. So it will just be interesting to see how the Scottish government respond to that and whether they can put in place some quite bold um, and sort of not just the same old stuff, but you know, not just saying, well, we need more flexibility around the fiscal framework um, to borrow more money, but maybe you know, looking at that £30 billion budget and how they could spend it differently in order to support economic recovery. You know, it can't be just about the UK government being bold and ambitious. You know, the Scottish government needs to think about how it can spend its its money in this this like unprecedented time, um, and yeah. to 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 support economic recovery. Yeah, and I think that's a fair point around <clears throat> the policy response in Scotland can't just always be about asking for more powers and more money. It's there's a thirty five billion pound or approximate budget there. So, how do you potentially do radical things quite differently in in, in that context? And um, Emma, maybe if I could turn to you. Um, <clears throat> a couple of questions about the future outlook for the labour market and particularly around households and what that, that this might mean for child poverty. And then while I've got you, um, if there's a question from Greg, Cameron, talking about universal basic income, and I know that's something that you've 
written and thought a lot about. So there's quite a few bits in there, but maybe if you could weave us, walk us through those aspects of how individuals and households might be impacted. Yeah, thanks. Um, so there's lots of uncertainty, obviously, um, but you know it's clear to see what some of the sectoral impacts are, and we know quite a lot about who works in in a lot of these sectors. So, um, from for the sort of traditional high street retail hospitality, um, you know, we're talking about already fairly low paid jobs, um, and we've you know we've looked at some of the characteristics of these households and. And there were already yeah, low earners and, and potentially uh, you don't have a lot of the uh, sort of don't have a buffer um, to sort of deal with these kind of crises. Um, and they are going to be sort of affected long term. So so there there is definitely a concern there. Um, in, in the in yeah, retail and hospitality as well, there's, there's quite a high um, proportion of, of women working there, particularly part time. Um, you know, probably um, people who in a lot of cases who have children um, and are sort of you know balancing work and care and um, so it is quite um quite worrying from that perspective in terms of prospects for women but also those um, impacts that then will, will follow through to those household finances and the impact on things like child poverty so um there's, there's a lot lot in there to be to be worried about um in terms of some of the other um sectors we we need to remember that you know um the coronavirus is still circulating so so workplaces that get back up and running and maybe find that they're struggling with social distancing could could be impacted so in the uk we so in england so we started to see some of the um, some of the uh, the start in terms of manufacturing and construction and as different parts of the uk start to to move on that we'll, we'll start to see how that goes but there could be implications there in terms of the virus starting to circulate among those workforces and maybe um, not being able to continue to work at capacity. Um, but there will be opportunities for some sectors that can adapt, um, that can find different ways of doing their business. Um, for people who are, um, for businesses who are able to put more people working from home and do that quite easily, there might indeed be some productivity benefits and, and, a, and a better kind of outlook for, for people working flexibly in those businesses going forward. So there are some opportunities there which could work well for the kind of work-life balance side of things as well. Um, but yeah, it, it, we we we're, it's fair to say that we do think there will be an impact on um, a detrimental impact on child poverty, um, just because of the fact that so many uh, families with children in poverty are working families and working in sectors that we think will be affected quite badly. So we will um, no doubt see reductions in their their income over the next few years, and that is 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 really worrying. Um, so. I mean, the tools to kind of deal with this while the labour force is, is struggling is to look at um, the social security system um, and also the cost of housing is the, is the other part of this equation. But in terms of the social security system, um, there are many tweaks that could make it just um, better for other people's access. So there's been calls, for example, to reduce the five-week wait for universal credit and to, to look at things like the... Um, the sort of the, the savings threshold, which means some people can't get income until they burn through all of their, their savings. So, um, so there are things to look at there. Whether universal basic income is a better alternative, I mean, I think the jury is still very much out on that. It, it, we've written a bit about this already. It really depends on what you're trying to get that universal basic income to do. Um, is it to um, get everyone out of poverty or is it just to give a basic income 
at quite a low level for people to to fall back on and um, but not be able to live on so there's loads of questions that that we need to work out in terms of what we want it to be able to do and then we have to work out if we can afford it and what some of the other consequences of doing that would be so it's not a it's not um it's not going to fix everything if we brought it in certainly not um and you know it's, it's something we should be talking about, but also looking at other ways in terms of how to make the social security system and do its job better um, for people who need it. Yeah, and what we can do is we can send a link to the group on, on the article we wrote about the basic income, picking up on that point about actually what's the purpose of a basic income, because if you're trying to use it to tackle poverty, it's very expensive. And there's other targeted measures that if that's your objective to tackle poverty that um, are potentially better targeted and and less costly. And, but then there's a question about actually is a basic income more of a solidarity between everybody in society? Um, but as you say, it's, it's very expensive to do if that's um, what you want to do. And, and interestingly, you wrote an article last week, Emma, about child poverty, particularly in Scotland, and the issue you touched on there about social security and the child payment that the Scottish government had planned to introduce this year. And now that's been delayed. So just at the time of child poverty is going up that mechanism is not going to come in yeah and it it's it's bad timing bad look on on timing anyway in terms of it just wasn't up and running um just because you know of when it was started and and what the the timeline was but yeah it does feel um very frustrating that that at a time like this the scottish government can't kind of sort of sweep in and and, and you know get extra money um, from the Social Security Agency out to children. Um, but there are other alternatives, and we wrote a little bit about that um, in the article. And it's also been echoed by um, some of our uh, well, a large number, actually, of poverty campaigners in Scotland who are asking for um, money to get out the door through local authorities and, and other existing payment mechanisms just to try and, and you know, help those who are in desperate need of money at this time. But there are questions, I think, going forward about how the social security system in Scotland is built and functions and whether, you know, it can be a bit more responsive in times of, of crisis. And um, so that's, um, yeah, definitely an interesting debate for the future. Yeah, and I guess that gets into the points that Mary was making earlier around, you know, a lot of the time the debate in Scotland is about well, if only we had more powers, and if only we had sort of more money, then we could actually do something about child poverty. Well, actually, you know, there is now a mechanism there, and there's a debate to be had, I'm not advocating either way, but there's a debate to be had about, post this, the government could, if they wanted to, direct more money into these sorts of payments. And there's a political choice there, there's arguments on, on all sides, but they have levers now to do that. And I guess that gets into Mary's point about how bold at the end of all of this you know, does government want to be? And, and interestingly, in some ways, I think with the election next year, it's actually, you know, in some ways, kind of good timing for all political parties to set out their response to this in the devolved policy. And, and I think it has to be called on all parties to come forward with ideas that are about what they would do with existing responsibilities rather than if only we had something else. And that's, that's an important debate, but it can't be the only debate um, that we ever have. Um, Stuart, um, you spoke a wee bit about um, crystal ball gazing into the future and what might happen. And um, 
It's a couple of interesting questions which I know you don't know the answer to, so I'll save you from trying to have to come up with right. a prediction. Um, but questions around, you know, just how, how, what's the proportion of businesses that, that might get through this, might survive? Um, and also what, what kind of rates of unemployment might be, look, be looking at at the end of this? And, and I, I should caution to everyone that we've been very clear not to try and put any numbers on it simply because it is largely unknown at the moment. Um, but it'd be good to get your just take on what you're seeing. And again, that helpful blog we published today kind of covers some of those issues. Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, I, I think the first thing is just the point you finished on there about um, we're not doing forecasts and no one's really doing forecasts um, because of, you know, we, we simply don't have enough information to make meaningful forecasts. The scenarios that Mary and I talked about uh, briefly earlier done by ourselves, Scottish Government, Bank of England, etc., um, are for, you know, a, a very sharp um, recession, very sharp um, recovery. Um, so, you know, no one thinks that's actually what we're going to, to, to see, but that sort of illustrative scenario um, sees unemployment um, hit, you know, something over 10%. Um, again, it's a scenario, not a forecast, but, you know, that's, that's the magnitude of, of, of what we're dealing with here. That would take the unemployment rate in Scotland back to um, the sorts of levels we saw in the early 90s, um, just, just by way of context. Um, so in terms of, of of just what that sort of GDP hit in those scenarios translates to, it's it's unemployment hitting um, something over 10%. Um, of course, um, you know, we'll see in the labour market stats next month, um, you know, an update. Um, ONS have been clear though that, that they're not going to treat furloughed workers as being unemployed. Um, they'll, they'll still be employed, but they'll just be away from work. Um, so, so that's sort of the unemployment point. Um, on the point about um, business, you know, what the shape of the business base that emerges from this will be, um, we don't really know. Um, I mean, we can start to piece together some aspects of it. So, you know, we, the, I think everyone's expectation is that business, the industry and, and markets will come out of this more concentrated than they went in. Um, you know, we're going to see a number of businesses um, cease trading um, through the next few months. Um, in some sectors, um, hospitality, tourism is one, pretty much written off this year. Um, in large part, um, what impact that's going to have, um, we don't yet know. But you know, if if we start thinking about um, which sectors we think are going to be um, hit hardest, and then overlay that with um, you know the, the the size of businesses in those sectors, we start to get a, a feeling for um, you know what this might do to to these these markets. Yeah, that's very helpful. And I think, yeah, I think the tracking of this data at the, at the time, I think, is 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 really important. And we, we, we touched on this um, a bit earlier, and it's, it comes into one of the questions about, you know, cash being king and um, insolvency would be really important. Um, that, that's the key in all of this, isn't it? So you can see things like turnover and GDP just ticking over, but it's actually what's, un, what's the underlying you know, business-based balance sheet of, of households, but also, um, you know, also uh, uh, businesses as well. That's the key bit. It's how long they can continue to survive on this kind of life support system from policy. And we've already had a bit of a discussion, haven't we, at, at the UK level about how you unwind this support. And because yeah. um, the risk is that the support's there that keeps people going, but then when it comes off, 
that's when you go off the cliff. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And I, I think one of the things as well, which I don't want to be the doomsayer, but you know, I, th I do also think at some point we need to have the conversation where we accept that we're not going to be able to protect every job that we had going into this crisis. Um, the economy coming out of this is going to look very different. Um, the support schemes have kept rightly um, people attached to jobs. They've preserved those employment relationships, but actually, um, you know, coming out of this, we're not going to be able to, you know, not all those businesses will be able to continue profitably trading. Um, and, and there's going to be a shakeout in the labour market. Um, and what's important, and Emma picked up on, on some of this, is that sort of social protections are, are there and robust um, for when that happens. Great, thanks. Yeah, so um, I guess turning now to kind of local regional aspects. So unsurprisingly, we've got some really good questions from Julie, Tommy and, and Richard <laughs> talking about regional aspects and outlook for local government. So um, there's a few aspects in there. Maybe, Mary, if you can maybe kick off on on the regional aspects and how things might change and all of this. And, and I guess picking up on your point about being bold and radical and rethinking things, what might that look like a, a regional context, both from a individual local government level, but also what national government might do differently? Yeah, it's a really good question because, I mean, the feature of the kind of um, the way that budgets have evolved over the last few years has been that um, that local government has kind of taken the hammer in, um, you know, and the, that's really the area where the budgets have been squeezed the most, which has obviously had an impact on on local services. And, you know, one of the concerns I had when I first heard about the policy measures that were being implemented to support businesses through this was how much it was going to rely on local government to administer these new brand new grants, you know, um, in a matter of weeks um, when, you know, these these bodies had been so cut to the bone and were so um, under pressure anyway. Um, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to get all of this money out the door successfully. Um, uh, so, you know, given that context, um, I think that local government has done a really good job to actually, you know, in the main, get these grants out the door um, uh, fairly quickly. But in terms of the, the future, um, yes, it's a really good question what might happen to local government funding. If, if Scottish government funding is, is under pressure, it's likely that so will local government funding be because even as we've seen local uh, Scottish government funding rise, it's still local government funding that's been squeezed. And I think here there's probably um, a place for some bold thinking about um, working together with um, local and national government. You know, um, the debate that takes place every budget is fairly depressing about whether the local government budget has gone up or not, given how much of the money is ring-fenced for national priorities. I think there's definitely a place for more working together to achieve joint outcomes at the, the national and local level. This will be an, um, something that impacts across Scotland. And therefore, I think there's, there is a place for, for better working together between national and local government. In terms of the, the city deals, um, which the city and regional growth deals, which now cover basically the whole of Scotland or will in some form, um, depending on what happens, obviously, given the current crisis. I think there is a case for them to be refocused to look at recovery. Um, Julie, in your question, you're right. Um, it's likely that the most vulnerable areas who are already suffering the most, just like the most vulnerable members of society, it'll be the most vulnerable regions of Scotland which will suffer most 
and therefore there's even more a case to look at how these growth deals could support um, you know those, those areas of Scotland through um, through this crisis so um, that yeah. definitely seemed like a, a place to look yeah, yeah and it's a good point and I do think as well your point about who takes responsibility of this and local government funding will be under pressure I also think there's there needs to be a much more grown-up conversation about that distinction between national and local government areas of responsibility. So if you take you know, North Ayrshire, for example, um, it's how they're impacted by national decision-making about where big public sector contracts go, about where big levels of activity go. That's not a local government area, but if you're, if you're trying to support areas that have lack of jobs, etc., you know, thinking about where you put big government agencies and institutions is a really important aspect um, of where you could have a na national policy, you could have quite a, a, an important regional dimension to it as well directly. But then in the Northeast, for example, it's how do you genuinely get national government to see um, not just rebalancing the place like North Ayrshire, but actually where there's opportunities to significantly use national powers to support growth and development in a part of the country that is strong but going through a major economic adjustment over the next wee while. So I think there's, there's, and it's less about this is what local government should have the power to do or less about what um, a, you know, national government might do at a, a national level but more about what national government might do to directly support regional and local objectives in a much more a much more aggressive and supportive way than perhaps has, than perhaps has been in the past. Stuart, there's a few questions there about universities. So I thought I would, as, as, as an academic, I thought I would ask, um, hand to you. So obviously, you know, uh, there's massive pressure on universities and um, given the potential hit to student numbers that we're likely to see over the next, uh, next year at least. And obviously that gets into big questions about sustainability and the role of universities in the economy. Can you maybe pick up, there's a couple of questions there, I won't read them out, but a couple of questions there about the future of universities, if maybe you could touch yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways that this is a good example of um, of part of the economy that, that ties together a lot of the, um, the issues that we've been talking about throughout this whole session. Um, you know, because universities have taken a big hit um, through, um, through this health crisis. Um, but at the same time have, have played an important role. Um, our colleagues um, in, in sciences and in health um, have, have played a key role in the public response to this. Um, so, you know, and of course, universities are a great vehicle of, of um, you know, social mobility. They're also a great way um, for, you know, and make a great contribution to the economy. That being said, and this goes back to the point you made about actually we need to make some tough choices um, and we need to you know, make, some, uh, make some difficult decisions now um, about what we want the future to look like, um, is I think there is a huge challenge with the business model of universities um, and the reliance of some institutions, particularly um, on international student fees. Um, and you know, I think there has been, Stephen uh, Boyle wrote uh, an article on our website, um, I think um, we'll send a link around, um, making the point that, you know, some university business models have um, left them quite exposed um, to this sort of crisis. Um, and they're now going to need some support to get through this. But actually, um, 
that this is an opportunity if we're ready to make the tough decisions necessary to change the university business model a bit and to make it more sustainable. Um, of course, you know, one of the, the great strengths is of our universities is that, you know, they're internationally excellent institutions, they attract students from all over the world, um, but actually fundamentally, if, if the business model is predicated on that, it means, you know, that when something like this happens um, and there is there's this sort of disruption, um, they are quite exposed. Um, so I, I think there's a number of issues there. Um, but I do think it goes back to um, this point about, you know, I think some tough decisions are made now about what we want our universities to do. Um, you know, I know, you know, we are, there's lots of uncertainty, but nevertheless, I think there is still a need for um, the Scottish Parliament um, to take a view about um, what it wants the future of our universities to look like um, and work with universities to deliver that. Yeah, and it's a really good point from John Vincent as you were talking there about colleges as well in that. And yeah. I know you were speaking just because of the, the questions about universities, yeah. but the role of colleges in all of this. And, and, and in many ways, you could argue there's, there's, a, there's been a debate needed to be have about the future of higher and further education yeah. in a much more digital economy, a much more, um, you know, in the, through the fourth industrial revolution, about the types of learning that young people, particularly young people, want to do and how they want to learn, and that traditional models of going for four years to university to sit in lectures. And um, already we are seeing that changing um, before all of this. Yeah. And I think that starts to get into a much broader conversation about funding, of course, but also about the nature of learning and how people genuinely do access yeah. education. So if you're going to change job four or five times through your life, then how do you continue to be able to have access to colleges and universities to provide the learning and the, the, the knowledge that you need? And, I, and actually, it might be colleges have a much bigger role to play in that because it's about short-term learning, it's dipping in and out of yep. skills than maybe spending four years sitting at Strathclyde doing a degree. Don't yeah. me on that. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that gets into two, two really interesting areas. I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the college sector is absolutely vital. And I think, you know, yeah, I didn't, I only omitted that because it wasn't in the question, but you know, you're absolutely right, it is really key. I think where we're starting to see um, things like the graduate apprenticeship come forward, I think we're, we're starting to see a step change in not just um, the delivery of teaching in, in colleges, universities, but actually um, a, a different way of, of thinking about um, how people progress through these sorts of qualifications. Um, and just to pick up on your point about uh, continuous um, professional development and uh, lifelong learning, as we used to refer to it, um, this has been a policy agenda in Scotland for literally decades. Um, and I think there is a real question about are, are the funding mechanisms for individuals in place to support that? You know, if, if you are somebody who is in a career right now and you want to change careers, um, are, you know, is the funding in place, are the funding mechanisms there to support you to do that? Um, and actually, um, for people who've already done a degree who might want to go and do another degree, there actually isn't that much um, support, um, particularly if they're wanting to do that part-time um, while still in a job. Um, so I, I think there's, there's a lot of challenges in this space, but um, you're absolutely right. I think that both the college and university sector have a big role to play. Yeah, so we've spoken a bit about all the challenges and all of that, and Don McRae asked the question about will there be opportunities once travel starts to open up to, for Scotland to attract visitors both here and 
within the UK for tourism and leisure activities. And there's already, a, there was a poll out this morning on the BBC talking about demand for people wanting to stay at home in Scotland this summer and holiday here. And I guess that's an example of where there might start to become opportunities from all of this. So I can maybe ask you all, if you look at the economy, and we've spoken a lot about the challenges and the crisis, where, what sectors or what opportunities there might be for the economy uh, as we start to move out of this and how might we help support that? So we start with Mary first. Sure, well, there's a, there's a couple of areas. Um, as, as Donald has indicated in his question, I mean, there is a potential opportunity for some of the, the international visitors that we might expect in Scotland to be substituted for, for UK people. Um, I think one of the challenges though for the rest of this year will be is, is that the capacity will just be severely reduced if we have to maintain the social physical distancing measures that um, we have to put in place. Um, and therefore the ability of um, restaurants, pubs um, and these sorts of things to actually um, you know, generate the sorts of income they would normally be used to will be severely reduced as well as they're likely to be fewer people. I mean, you know, just now in Scotland, you know, we do um, attract more international visitors than, than, you know, they go elsewhere. You know, it's a, it's a net benefit to our economy. So um, it is the case that we're going to suffer if we're not able to have international visitors coming here who tend to stay longer and spend more money than domestic travellers do. So yes, there's an opportunity that more people will want to stay in Scotland or come to Scotland from the rest of the UK, but it isn't going to make up for the lost income from international visitors who tend to spend more money. In terms of other opportunities though, I mean, one of the things that will be interesting is what the kind of view of supply chains is in the future. I mean, obviously if, um, if, if some businesses do go out of, of business, in particular sectors, then there's perhaps reduced competition, and it might be the sort of the strongest that survive through this, um, which might make uh, different sectors more efficient or more productive. Um, but it might be that we look differently at supply chains and not just necessarily at how we can get the cheapest inputs into our production processes, but maybe the least risky. And that might mean um, domestically produced goods rather than um, buying things in long international supply chains. That's a possibility which might lead, I suppose, to a resurgence in some types of things like manufacturing in Scotland. Okay. And, and, and Emma, from your perspective, what do you think, what do you think the opportunities mm. could be well, in all this? Just echoing what Mary said there and reflecting on a podcast we did earlier this week with um, some agricultural economists from the Scotland Rural College and they talked about some of this in terms of, you know, the agricultural sector is there and, and will continue to be there, you know, with the challenges that come. But it's, a, it's also a, you know, a potential growth sector in terms of food supply and production. So, um, and of course, it will always need, need a workforce. So that could, could be one area. And with people more interested, which has already um, slightly come to the fore in terms of where their food is coming from and how they can you know, ensure that they have supply. Um, everyone was very scared by the empty supermarket shelves, I think, at the start of this crisis. So that might be something to think about. Um, in terms of other sectors, so I think, you know, this crisis has really brought to the fore the importance of people working in the care and um, health and um, care sector. And, you know, the, there is going to be um, obviously a continued demand for people to work in that and, and the, no doubt quite a lot of fatigue for people that have been working in it during um, 
the last last wee while and if there isn't a, a better focus in terms of how do we make that sector you know stronger and how do we ensure you know that some of the the issues of have come to the fore and, and shown to be, you know, threatening to people's lives during this crisis are addressed, then, you know, the future for the care sector could, could actually be of uh, better paid and more valued staff in terms of what they do. Um, and because of the nature of that work, it, it can be done on a shift basis, it can be done, it can be done part time, and that really offers opportunities for people that might have barriers, other barriers to the labour market um, for full time um, work, for example, or who can't cope over the uncertainty of a zero hours contract. So, so that could be one area where we see um, some growth and some opportunities. Yeah. And one of the really interesting things as well, just picking up on Mary's stuff as well, about the opportunities, but it's largely, it's been picked up a bit, but it's largely not been picked up too much about the supply chain that the government have helped put together around PPE, um, which is a really good example of one where government taking on that facilitation role and that ability to get link up businesses to, to fill a gap that was an urgent need there has been, I think it has been an outstanding example of, of government, you know, using its facilitation and leadership powers in that. And I guess one of the things will be is taking the lessons from that. Well, if you can do that now, what potentially could you do more in the future to potentially provide, you know, opportunities for supply chains and linkages, et cetera. I know Scottish Enterprise do a great job in that already, but you know, if you're thinking about practical measures you could do to try and take advantage of, that then, 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 then that's all the better. Stuart, from your perspective, and where do you potentially see the opportunities in all of this? Um, I mean, I guess going last, I need to come up with something that's, that's different than, than what um, my colleagues have. They've, they've nobbled the easy ones um, in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I, I think everything that, that, that Mary and, and Emma have said makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, I guess the other way of thinking about this slightly is um, sort of through this crisis we've we've thought about um, and in some ways understood um, you know what we value but also how we can do things differently and I think for, for me one of the things coming out of this is is um, you know it's it's likely to be the case that for example our cities are going to look really different than what they did before um, you know, we already, we'd seen for years, if not decades, the decline of high street retail. Um, this crisis has in a lot of ways forced people um, to go one of two ways, either online um, or to, um, you know, more local um, sort of shops. Um, and so if you think about, you know, the restart, you think about social or physical distancing still having to take place, and you think about what our city centres are right now, it's bars, restaurants, shops, offices. Um, and if these offices are working at 30% occupancy, not 80, um, and you know, bars, restaurants, cafes, um, shops are, are doing much the same, um, I think there's a huge challenge about what does the future of our cities look like um, and what opportunities does that create? Um, you know, it, 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 seems, it seems to me that, that as we're doing a lot of things more online, as people aren't going to cities more, as people are, are looking for um, places to go where physical distancing is easier, um, there's a real opportunity for cities, but also a real risk for them if they don't get this right. 
So I'd unmute myself. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's where it's then how, how do you reimagine the future cities? How does it all link together? There's a really good question there about um, from Yasmin about the creative sector and you know how you know a, a sector that's built around human interaction and engagement, whether that be music, whether that be you know theatre, whether that be football, uh, all that type of stuff uh, is going to have to think of a radically new um, you know business model in all of that. But I guess within that, that's where opportunities come. And there's potential ways where you can start to try and think about how you reimagine that, how you do that differently, um, how you potentially link people up who would not normally have had an opportunity to do that. And you know, rural communities that have been disadvantaged and disenfranchised for years, and all of these activities is a potential for them to to get involved more um, with all of that as time goes on. And one of the other questions, Mary, we've had around construction and housing and um, what the potential outlook might look like for, for that sector, well, for, for construction, but then also into the future outlook for housing. Um, and um, we would give you, you maybe give us some reflections on that and how all of that looks. Yeah, well, obviously, um, the sort of supply of housing and uh, construction on, on, these, on housing estates um, kind of came to a halt. Um, but this is one of the first areas where there seems to be a, a sort of unwinding of activity in, in, in England in particular, but also in Scotland as well from, from anecdotal things that we're hearing from companies. So it's likely that um, this sort of activity will be getting back underway. I mean, the wider point, I suppose, is the, what will the demand be like for housing in, in the next few months? Um, there's obviously a number of transactions which were sort of underway, <laughs> which will now be completed. Then there might be a bit of a glut of these transactions going through as, as they're allowed to be completed. But we can't ignore the fact that there's likely to be quite a lot of um, impacts on, on personal finance and the ability to, um, you know, look, think about moving um, people's um, view of risk at the moment and whether they want to take on more debt and a larger mortgage and things like that. So <laughs> given the wider economic um, recession that we, we've entered and um, the restrictions on income and finance, it's likely that there's probably going to be a, <clears throat> you know, a more muted um, housing market for the next few months. Um, and let's face it, the capacity of, of um, the market to turn over properties is going to be reduced, particularly if there's a lot of measures on social distancing that have to be observed. Um, whilst viewing houses and these sorts of things. So um, it's likely that that's the case. However, it doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, there is a, an issue with the supply of housing in Scotland and the rest of the UK, which, which you know, hasn't gone away. Um, there's still an undersupply of housing. So it's likely that, you know, the housing market will sort of recover um, because at the end of the day, there's still too few houses for the number of people who are looking for them particularly in certain parts of Scotland. And yeah, it's like everything, isn't it? It's a barometer of what's happening in the, in the wider economy and how that might, uh, and, and how that might evolve. Uh, Emma, that, I mean, we touched on this before in a few of our sessions about how we value jobs and jobs that we thought were, or jobs that many people thought were low value um, just a few months ago are actually now the, the jobs that we depend on for absolutely everything and particularly around I guess the care profession and 
it's something we've spoken about in a number of times about health and social care and the integration for that and even just recently we've moved to the social care sector being um, getting paid a living wage um, which is extraordinary to think about it it's only now just getting paid a living wage um, so what do you think might be the kind of long-term view around the future of the care profession and potential for career opportunities um, in there? I mean, it's a tricky one because so much of it is is reliant on on funding that comes from from the government. So you know, it's very much about you know the government needs to take um, a long hard look at it the way it decides on on value for money in terms of how that sector operates so looking at you know the way sort of contracts or or the way um things are procured in in the government so um there is a lot of uh, emphasis on on you know on the price being in being low um obviously other things are, are brought into the equation as well but you know does that give you that kind of long-term um security and and give the um, you know give the right kind of signals as as to actually how um, important that sector is, and I think you know as we've seen um, from the way that the crisis has has um, has kind of was a, was so focused on how the NHS would cope, and then very little focused uh, on on the social care particularly social care in the residential settings until arguably it, you know it was too late. Um, you know, that just is that kind of reinforcing of how these two sectors, um, which do a very similar job and are so um, interrelated, you know, and even officially so through the kind of um, the partnerships that have been set up by, by the Scottish Government in order to kind of facilitate how this works. But there's clearly something that's, that, that's not quite working. And, and as you said, the living wages, you know, is part of this. And, and it's great that that is kind of on offer, but it's also things around how the contracts work and and how all time is being, um, you know, whether all time is being paid for in terms of, you know, commuting to and from um, different social care settings. So there's, there's lots of things in there that could actually make um, the workforce feel more valued. It's not all about pay, but, you know, that is quite a big part of it, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there's a question, just a, a question around kind of, I guess, capital borrowing and investment um, Mary, so obviously the Scottish National Investment Bank has been launched and is kind of, you know, progressing. Um, and then this week there was a kind of call for the Scottish Government to be able to issue longer term bonds um, at a significant scale to invest in all manner of different things. Um, and I guess that's, I guess, as we're coming to think about the recovery, that's going to be a key area of focus, isn't it, about investment in companies supporting growth companies um, and not just supporting companies to survive yes absolutely um, just sort of taking the the um the call for um scottish government to issue long-term bonds i mean just to clarify the current situation um the scottish government does under the scotland act 2016 have the ability to issue bonds if if it, if it wished to do so um however it is still restricted under its capital borrowing limits are set out under the fiscal framework which limits it to 450 um, million pounds a year up to a, an overall cap um, of I think it's 1.75 billion um, pounds so you know it's it, it does have the ability to issue bonds but um, I'm not sure that it would be sensible to issue bonds as opposed to borrow in the way that they're doing from the treasury because it's much cheaper to do so 
So it's not really an attractive option right now, the Scottish Government, given that it's not like it's additional borrowing that they could they could um, access. I mean, I suppose this comes back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, that um, it's not always about um, necessarily new powers or more flexibilities that the Scottish Government needs in order to deal with some of these policy issues and invest um, in, in public infrastructure or invest in um, growth companies. Um, the Scottish Government does have significant funds and significant powers to look at this already. Um, you know, and the Scottish National Investment Bank, I suppose, is an example of that, which has significant funds. And I think it seems very likely that um, the SNIB will refocus its, um, its missions, as they call it, on economic recovery um, now, um, given the, the situation that we're in. Um, and that has, does have significant funds. Whether it is um, the funds that it has are sort of large enough to cover the recapitalisation that might be required is another question. But again, if it wished to, the Scottish Government could look at its, its large budget and decide to reprioritise that from, from other areas, say other areas of economic development or, or, or whatever. So um, the long-term bonds thing, you know, under the current fiscal framework, doesn't seem like an attractive option for more borrowing. But as we said earlier, more borrowing isn't necessarily always the answer. Um, and there are options for things like the SNIB to look at, um, you know, a different focus on supporting economic recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess it wouldn't be a, an economics webinar just now without some form of question around Brexit. And uh, Ron asked that really good question about, you know, how might how might the pandemic change? I guess the nature of of the relationship there, and I guess there's some interesting questions about the timing around Brexit, but also be the question he's hinting at as well around a model that we've had for years that has relied on globalization. And you mentioned it long supply chains, actually. Um, might there be some benefits, particularly in some sectors, about ensuring a level of local supply um, to cope with major risks and consequences such as this? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of different ways this can go. <laughs> um, you know, it could be that it's seen as um, that a closer relationship than perhaps was being proposed in the past would be more beneficial. Um, given the level of risk that this pandemic has posed to all economies um, and no economy is sort of safe from it. Um, or like you say, um, it might mean that um, there's, a, there's a degree of protectionism so that supply chains are secure within countries. Um, I mean, obviously the timescales that we're now working to on Brexit look quite um, scary in a way because, um, you know, it's it's all, we're almost halfway through the year when an, any sort of extension transition period would have to be agreed fairly soon. Um, and if, you know, if a deal isn't put in place, then, you know, that will be a, a, a very hard Brexit, which um, might have um, pretty bad economic consequences. But um, it might be that um, either the transition period is extended or that the view of um, the sort of Brexit that we want has changed um, as a result of the pandemic, either as you say, um, um, because of protectionism, or a view that it's better to be part of, you know, a closer part of a larger trading bloc. Great, excellent, thank you very much. Um, I'm just conscious of time and that has come up pretty much to the full hour we have set aside for questions. Um, and 
I just want to say before closing, just thank you very much for joining us today and for your ongoing support and interest in the work of the Fraser Allender Institute. So you can keep up to date with our writings on our website, so that's www.fraserallender.org. You can also click on subscribe um, and you can get outputs from there and future webinars, etc. that we are running as we go. Um, obviously, social media, strath underscore .fei is where we're putting most of our activities and most of our writings out on that. Um, you will see on there today uh, guidance about signing up for Tuesday's session with the Resolution Foundation, which promises to be a really um, interesting webinar uh, with them. So can I just leave, conclude today just by thanking um, you all for joining us. Um, stay safe and we hope to see you very soon. Thank you.